Let us pray. Dearest Jesus, thank you so much for giving us eternal life, for dying for us, for raising us to life in our baptism. We thank you today, Lord. Let us listen to you and listen to your word from Matthew as you teach us in this parable. In your name we pray, amen. Close your eyes and picture in your mind, if you will, a world in which people actually did what Jesus teaches people to do in this scene from Matthew. I was hungry and you gave me food. Can you imagine a, a world in which people bent on ultra-nationalism provide food and drink to those of different races and cultures from, their, from theirs who sneak across the border instead of going through the proper channels? I was sick and you visited me. Can you see a world in which radical feminists and sexual revolution activists visit those in the hospital with traditional social and moral values and care for them while they're ill, vulnerable, and in pain? I was in prison and you came to me. Can you picture a world in which self-righteous law and order types go into prisons to encourage and help the incarcerated? If you can imagine these things, then your imagination is better than mine. I've asked you to imagine a place that's not in this world, but is more like the kingdom of God. When Jesus calls us to do these things and to love our enemies and pray for those who hate us, he's not imagining a fantasy world. He's painting a picture of what it means to follow him into humanity's darkest corners and lift up those we find there into the light of his love. He's calling us to do for others what he's done for us. Not die for them, of course, but to live an orthodox life. Now that may sound odd to you because we normally associate orthodox with other denominations or religions. You know, the Greek, the Greek Orthodox Church or Jewish Orthodox religion. And within those two things, we understand Orthodox to mean believing the right things or worshiping God the right way. But from a biblical perspective, Orthodoxy isn't a matter of believing the right things as much as it means living a life aligned with God's will and glorifying Him by letting the life of Christ show itself in us. That's orthodox. Our Lord cares. I mean, he cares that we believe the right things. And he calls us to repeatedly believe what he teaches and to pass them on to others rightly. So believing the right teachings is an important aspect of the orthodox life. Say, for instance, after learning in a Bible study during Advent that Jesus was conceived in Mary, a virgin, by the Holy Spirit and not by Joseph, you wouldn't then go and tell the story to someone else and say, Jesus was conceived by Joseph and his friends just said after, they just said afterwards that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit so that Jesus would seem deified. Well, you wouldn't say that, right? Because that's not a teaching in Scripture or anywhere else for that matter. That's just an idea that some people have. God also calls upon us to worship him rightly. 
In both the Hebrew scrolls and the Greek New Testament, God instructs his people on how they are to worship him. Of course, that doesn't mean we must use page 5 and 15 from the Lutheran hymnal. He desires to be worshipped in faith by his people, magnifying him, which includes singing songs about him and what he's done, repeating back to him his word, such as in the Psalms, giving thanks and praise, praying, gathering of the tithes and offerings, confessing to him that we're sorry that we sinned, receiving his body and blood for forgiveness of sin and strength to face the weeks ahead of this altar. You know, when you consider our hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half worship service, which for some people is, is all they're willing to tolerate on a Sunday, we're so different than those who came before us in the days of Paul and the first century church. Church gathering then, in, in Paul's day, was an all-day event for the whole family, which included food, breaks, and specified times during the worship where inquisitive people and those who hadn't been baptized yet were asked to leave. Readings took hours. Scrolls of the Gospels and letters of the Apostles were heard in their entirety. Teaching, or catechumenate, as it was known, was a large part of each service. Compared to the new church, ours today seems like a comic I have in my office which shows a family pulling up in their car to a drive-up church. The dad says to the attendant at the window, I'll have a sermonette, tidbits, sound bites, half-baked nuggets, and some handshakes. Hold the judgment. And the guy at the window says, would you like fries with that? How did we get here? Well, that's a story for another day. Living an orthodox life, however, also includes how we treat other people. Paul reminds us in his letter to the new Christians in Corinth, even if one speaks in tongues, has the gift of prophecy, understands all the mysteries, has all the knowledge, and has faith great enough to move mountains, which, you know, all that, that's a pretty tall order, right? That's like practically nobody, right? Nevertheless, without love, he is nothing. Without empathy, compassion, care for his fellow man, woman, child, he is nothing. And Paul doesn't mean a person's love for themselves. It's easy to understand why we prefer to ignore this aspect of the orthodox life. It's hard to love the unlovely or the unlovable. Much of the American Christian church has a hard time with this teaching. And it may have something to do with the holiness movement in the 1800s, where the mindset became that the church is made up of former unlovely people who are now lovely and righteous. When you're in, you're in. And those who are still unlovely are out. So don't mess with them, lest you backslide into unworthiness. But it may also be as simple as sin keeps us from going outside our own camp. 
Jesus' call to live an orthodox life can make us feel uncomfortable because he might lead us to some dark corners of this world and we don't want to see that or deal with those who live there. But it can also make us Lutheran Christians uncomfortable if it sounds as if God is asking us to earn our own salvation by doing good works for people. The language of reward and punishment can be misunderstood as it is in, our, in this gospel reading. So it's important to remember that this is a parable, a story used to teach a lesson. Not a, uh, it's not a declaration of the doctrine of how we are saved, you know, justification. It's not that. Jesus uses this parable to teach us, to teach his people how we should live as we wait for him to return. Within this parable, Jesus speaks to you of the kingdom he has already prepared for you to inherit. From eternity, God has appointed his son Jesus to be the one who saves you, who saves you from sin, death, and hell. And in time, Jesus obediently went to the cross to prepare a place for you in his father's house. Those on Jesus' right will be all those who have believed and trusted in his death and resurrection as the way to eternal life. The love they show others isn't the basis for their standing with the God. It's a reward for their faithfulness. Love demands that we put ourselves out for those who can't possibly benefit us in return. And love gives what it has to provide for those who are hungry and thirsty. It tends the sick. Love welcomes the stranger, even foreigners. Love goes into prisons to care for those who are locked up, in many cases for the rest of their lives. And love embraces those who hate it. Love prays for those who persecute it. Love does all this knowing full well that none of those it helps can do anything in return. Love does all this because it has experienced the love of God and longs to be the means by which God's love reaches all people. Who among us has truly lived this orthodox life? Who alone has truly lived this orthodox life perfectly? Only one, Jesus Christ. Of all people on this earth, it's only Jesus who has lived a truly orthodox life, a life which perfectly reflects the perfect love of God to every person in every circumstance. So then, why does Jesus ask us to live such a life? Because Jesus lives his life in us. In us. You and I were put to death in baptism and raised to new life in Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus who lived and died for you, you can live the orthodox life. Sounds cheesy like a cliche. You can live, you know, the orthodox life. I wouldn't dare say your best life now, right? Because our best life is to come. But you can live an orthodox life, not perfectly as Jesus has, but it is the way he wants you to live while you wait for the resurrection on the last day. Now, having said all this, I'm not saying what I'm going to say next 
as a way to test you and see if you'll do what you just heard or something like that. It's not what I'm saying. But an opportunity to live the orthodox life appeared out of nowhere on Saturday. I got a call from the district office that a mother and her young daughter from Grenada are at the Shriners Hospital here in Portland. And they were sponsored here by, the, uh, the, uh, by an LCMS congregation in the Atlantic District. So they asked if someone would go visit them. Well, that's normally something that I do as pastor. I go to hospitals, I visit people. But you can too. So I have a name of the mother and child. I know where they're at. If you're willing to go with me today or this week, you will not be sorry you did that, okay? Living the Orthodox life can be a fabulous encouraging of your faith and also the help of others. So let me know if you're interested. And may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.